we've been doing a doctrine series um, for, I don't know, a little while. Uh, I thought I'd list off what we've done thus far uh, to get you at a proper understanding of what we're doing today and why I decided to do something. Well, Jack and I, a long time ago, decided maybe we would do something that would be fun for everyone. So we started off uh, with the doctrine of the word. Basically, let me take one step back. We've been preaching through the book of Matthew for about 20 years now. And um, <laughs> seems like forever. I think we're like 80 sermons into the book of Matthew. And because Easter is coming up, we decided to take Matthew 28, verses 1 through, I think, uh, 10, and kind of move that down right there on Easter and move our way back to Matthew 26 is where we'll start. And that's going to be in February. So in the meantime, we decided over this fall to do a doctrine series. Uh, it's the first time we've ever done something like this. We usually just preach through a book of the Bible. But as we've been doing the doctrine series, the, what we've done so far is we started out with the doctrine of the Word. Jack did that for us. And then after that, we did God. So we looked at the Trinity. We looked at Christ and the Holy Spirit. And then we moved more out into some of the things that have been created and things like that. So we did creation. We did man. Uh, we also did prayer. And then the atonement, which is where Christ died on the cross for us. Then we looked at salvation. So we talked about regeneration and sanctification. Uh, we didn't get to do justification and glorification, but, you know, we have to do what we can. And then we decided to look at the church, the community. And so uh, we did the doctrine of the church and we did a mission project. And then last week we did the ordinances, um, which is <clears throat> um, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we t tried to talk a little bit about what that would look like inside of a church coming. We're going to do uh, worship next week and we're going to do spiritual gifts and then lastly, uh, we're going to do heaven and hell, which I'm not really sure how that's panning out yet. We're, we're still figuring that out. But we thought as we're doing that, none of those are real controversial. So we thought we'd throw one fun, controversial one in there, which is what I'm going to do today. So today we're going to do the doctrine of election. And so uh, it, it's an interesting topic to talk about. Um, and we've all probably found ourselves in different camps along our lifetime. I'm going to talk a little bit about my little journey uh, and I'll get us to where we're all going to kind of go. Um, I'm going to be as fair as possible, I think. Um, I feel like I'm really fair here. So uh, I want to pray because obviously the doctrine of election is a very controversial um, and it can, it can end up in, in discussions that might not be so fruitful. So what I want to do is, I think it's something to talk about. I think it's something that we, everybody will probably deal with, think about, and need to be informed about. But in the end, I want to try to bring us all around to what I think the real main application of something like this would be. So let me pray, and then we will jump into the doctrine of election. Let's pray. Lord, we are truly desperate for your presence and need you to send your spirit um, in really two ways. First, for myself, God, that I would speak with accuracy, that I would speak with precision, with grace, and that everything I say would be true um, and from you. But also, on the other side, Lord, uh, for us all to be able to hear and think well in a way that doesn't cause any kind of disunity, that doesn't cause any kind of um, taking us off of mission. But Lord, that as we, <clears throat> as we look and talk about what could be a subject, that there might be some disagreement um, throughout the church, which is fine. Um, that in the end, we can still rally around the main thing, making disciples. And so we pray that you would be with us now and help us as we look through this particular doctrine and understand what it is that you're calling us towards um, in regard to making disciples. But uh, also, Lord, just how we can think well about this, uh, even where, no matter where we fall, that we can think well about this uh, topic. We, we love you and we pray that you would use this, um, as always, to move us towards awe and worship, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, this verse won't be on the screen, but verses like this have formed this type of discussion um, throughout the last 2,000 years and, and will form kind of our discussion today. In Romans chapter 8, there's a, uh, th this isn't our main verse. If you want to actually flip, you can go to Romans 9. We'll go there in a little bit. Um, yes, I chose Romans 9. But anyway, uh, this particular verse kind of forms uh, the discussion. So there's a little chain of events that happens in the life of people in regard to being saved um, as, as a whole. And Romans 8 kind of gives us a little, little uh, link, link, link in that little chain and what it looks like. And he says, and for those whom he predestined, um, 
he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you can see there's a predestining, and after the predestining, there's a calling, and those who called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, those who declared righteous, he also glorified. So there are things that aren't in there, right? There's not regeneration, there's not sanctification in there, but there is a clear uh, beginning to end of salvation. And so that particular verse and verses like that kind of form our thought and form our discussion on how we can think well about this today. So I thought it might be helpful to give my little, my little journey uh, and just to realize that we're all kind of on a theological journey trying to figure out things. Um, and <clears throat> your journey may look like mine, your journey may be the opposite of mine, but it, does, it doesn't really matter. You may grow up in what could be a quote-unquote reformed church and go to what would be a quote-unquote Arminian position, or you can grow up in an Arminian position, I'll define all these terms in a minute, if you don't know what they are, and move to a reformed position. And basically that just means um, uh, Arminian reform are just ideas on how we view this doctrine of election. Uh, the Arminian position in the end would say um, the, the highest thing would be man's free will, and because of that, uh, they have the decisive, man has the decisive power to choose whether they want God or not. The reform position would be, in the end, God has the re- decisive decision in the end on your salvation. We'll, we'll get to that. I know it sounds controversial. Let's talk about this first. So I grew up in what would be uh, a typical Southern Baptist church, uh, Arminian-ish, and probably atheological. So which means they, they lean towards uh, man has the decisive thought in his salvation, and atheological in that there really wasn't a theological church. Like, uh, we wanted people to n- come to know Christ, but there wasn't a ton of doctrine taught at all. So I didn't really know much about anything. I really didn't even know that the idea, um, I, I didn't know that Ephesians 1.5 existed. No one had ever re- read to me that God had predestined. I did, that, that thought never even occurred to me growing up until I went to college. So um, I, was, I was in this, this church, never really knew anything. I, I, I didn't think I could lose my salvation. I was pretty, you know, Baptist in that regard. Uh, and so I went to the University of South Carolina. I spent three years there. Didn't really do much church stuff. I just did a lot of baseball stuff with the team. I, I worked for the team. And after that, when God, I knew God was calling me into ministry, I transferred down to Charleston Southern, and I went to a Baptist college, and I met this guy named Paul. Now, this guy Paul, I didn't like so much. Um, Paul was kind of a loner. Paul was really loud, and Paul loved to have theological arguments. I mean, that, Every day in class, Paul was a religion major like me, and every day in class he would find a way to disagree with the professor like as soon as class started to talk about what would be in quote-unquote Calvinism, Reformed theology, because Paul was a Calvinist and Paul wanted everybody to be a Calvinist. And that guy, um, from kind of the beginning, set up for me a deep dislike towards Calvinism. I, I wanted to think of everything I could to make Paul not look smart in class. And so I would, because he just, he bugged me a lot by the way he was just, ah, you know those guys. And you probably met some of those guys that are theological, ah, guys. And so um, you want to do everything you can to disagree with, with, with the Paul in your life and go read every book you can to destroy all of his arguments. So um, I, I did that. And I, I, <clears throat> I wasn't a big fan of Paul, and I would argue with him, and I would, in my mind, shut him down um, theologically because he wasn't very good at arguing. He just had a really strong opinion. Um, and so th- he would al- obviously argue with the professor, and that never goes well. Um, even whatever you think about professors, generally, they're smarter than you. So don't argue with them. You're going to get made look silly. Um, so anyway, we, we, we kept going through, and this was circa, for me, 1996 or so, the first time I had ever even heard the idea of predestination for salvation. I'd never even heard of it, and I, I did not like it whatsoever. I didn't come up with that bring it, upbringing. I rebelled against it completely. I, I, I did not like it. So anyway, I started working at a church, and this was really patronizing, and it made me, made me really mad. There was a guy, he was 55 or so. Uh, he worked on staff there. He was the worship guy, and I was the youth guy. I, I mean, I was 23. I don't know, something like that, and so um, the pastor, I, could, I don't know where he was, but this guy was clearly reformed and I was clearly not. He was a Calvinist and I was not. And so we would start talking about it. I would start arguing and I would, you know, try to push him and out-argue him like Paul, um, which I could destroy pretty easily. Um, but, but this guy, I couldn't. And it always frustrated me. And this is what he would do. He'd say, tap me on the shoulder and he'd say, it's okay. I was once where you were. And I was like, don't you patronize me like you're the guy that's up there and smart and I'm the moron, you know, the village idiot that doesn't know how to do anything. I just can't think and I'm some moron. And, and I always got so mad at him like, 
oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Brilliant, you're so smart, and I'm the moron that doesn't think like you. And so it always made me so mad, right? Made me so, so mad that you're so smart because you're the Calvinist, and obviously if you're not a Calvinist, you must be a moron. And so I didn't, I, I think that's just a horrible way to think. And so I got really mad, and so around, after I finally graduated college, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read their books, and I'm going to really know their arguments and destroy them. And so I decided I would read a book called Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul in 1999. Um, so I read that, and then after that, I decided I was going to read Desiring God by John Piper. And then the rest, as they say, is history. Whenever I saw that there were a lot of good biblical arguments in there that I had never heard before. And so thus began my journey from 1996 to 1999 to roughly... Uh, yeah, I would say right around 1999 or so is whenever I moved my position over to be what would be the Reformed or whatever you want to call it. Now, that doesn't mean that if you don't go that way or if you grew up in a, in a Reformed position and you've moved to Armenian, that I think that you're a moron like that guy that used to tell me that. I don't think that. I think that we all have our experiences and it all takes people a certain long time three, four years to figure out their theological position. And so the main thing I think is good is that as we interact theologically with each other, we just let people have that time. It took me four years to figure out where I was. And so whatever position you start at and whatever position you end at, that's fine with me. I think the best thing for us to do is allow people the four years to get, five years, however long it takes, to get where they need to go. I think that that's the, the more christian-like way to live life when it comes to theological discussions uh, now i certainly have an, a, a position and i think that we're all going to end up in those positions but the best thing we can do is let people go down the journey like it's good for them to walk down and figure out where they are and not try to force them like paul to to you know move to your position because you think it's right because you could be wrong i mean i could be wrong right so why would I teach this doctrine? Why would Jack and I talk about this? Why would we think it's, it's a good thing to talk about in our doctrine series? First is, um, because this is a big, often debated question. It, it was for me in college when I finally found out that it was one. And I think it's just good to, uh, I think it's good for us to be able to at least know the sides and understand that there's people that think both ways and for us to be able to um, practice gracious speech to one another. So I think that's one reason why we should talk about it. Uh, the other reason for those that might, um, <clears throat> for those that might hold to the, the side that I would hold to, which would be this uh, reformed position, um, is that for me, it, at least, it's a, uh, it's a great source for worship. Like, to think that God would choose me when he didn't have to, just amazes me. It causes me to want to live for him because he, he had no reason to. There's nothing good in me. And yet he decided to show mercy on me anyway. For me, that's a source to say, huh, well, then I just want to worship you. I, I can't believe that you would do that. I want to worship you for that. Um, and another thing is this. Why would I teach this? Is because we're going to differ on this. And I thought that it would be helpful for us to realize that this is not necessary for salvation. Whatever position you hold to, it's not necessary for salvation that you hold to one position or the other. What's necessary for salvation, and we would all agree with this, is belief in Jesus. Belief that his work, his death, his burial, and his resurrection on the cross is what's necessary for salvation. And that's our message. Whichever way we fall on, that's our main message of of trying to communicate to other people. We're not trying to make people Armenians and Calvinists. We're trying to make people Christians. And so I think it's very important for us to talk about this because that's um, what we want to hold out as the most important thing. We want to hold the gospel out in front of people, not a system of salvation. So Ecclesiastes 3, 3.11 says that God has put eternity into man's heart. This means every man is an everlasting being. He will live, he, we have a definite beginning, but we'll all live forever. And so since we're all going to live forever somewhere, we as Christians believe that's either heaven or hell. We're either going to go to heaven or we're either going to go, go to hell. So the salvation of man's souls is a very important thing to talk about. And it's never a, a pointless endeavor to look into and understand. But at the end, um, talks like this, verses like this, talking about this doesn't, uh, doesn't mean that this is where we need to stay. I mean, obviously, it comes down to wherever we fall, uh, and I'm going to have some applications, so I don't want to give it all away here at the end. Um, well, I don't, uh, there's, there's, there's things we have in common. Let's just say it that way. There's, there's a lot of things we have in common. 
Um, we could start with Jesus. So anyway, a couple, a couple verses that I think are um, good for us to look at. Now, what I want to do is give the two greatest verses of argument's sake for what would be the Arminian position. Um, these are the two main, main, main verses that Arminians refer to to make their strongest case. And these are really good verses for their case. And then I'm going to use two verses that give what would be the reform position. And then we're going to unpack with a fourth one. So uh, I think that the best thing that we can do, if, we're, if you're completely unfamiliar with anything that I'm talking about, um, I thought that it would be really helpful for you to get kind of the, the meat of the arguments today, the meat of the positions, and then um, after that, I'm going to look at four things from Romans 9 that I think are helpful, and then I have an application. So that's what we're doing. So we're going to look at four verses total, two on Armenian, two on Reformed, and the fourth one, we're going to look at four points. Everything's themed with four today. We're going to look at four points, and then at the end, I've got four applications. All right, so um, let's look at these verses together. These, these first two verses we're going to look at are the two main verses that the Armenian position holds that are strong, strong arguments for what would be their position. So um, the first one comes from 1 Timothy. You can go ahead and put it up there. 1 Timothy 3 and 4, really verse 4 is kind of the main one, but it says this, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires, look at this, desires, wills, wants, uh, desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So when someone on my side looks at this and says desires all people, well, if God desires all people to be saved, then how can you say that he is choosing some then that means thereby if he's choosing some then he does not desire those that he doesn't choose to be saved so this this is a pretty strong verse that people that would be in the reformed position have to have a decent answer to now um i've I've decided this whole week to try to go back and forth on whether i should answer the two strong verses because again i'm trying to shoot for what would be unity in this Um, so what i'll do is just try to give you what i think gives somewhat answers towards this and um, in the end, I'm not going to give the Armenian position that refutes those other two verses because I don't think there are any, but whatever. Um, uh, so 1 Timothy 3, 4. So there's one little thing that you can look at in 1 Timothy 1 that I think is really interesting. Um, if you're looking at 1 Timothy 1, really through 5, you can get the whole point that he's trying to make. So if you have a Bible, you can look at it. I only have 3 and 4 there. But you can, you're not going to pick this up in your English translation. But there's something really neat that Paul is doing in 1 Timothy 1 through 5. So if you look at 1 Timothy 1 through 5, in verse 1, you're going to see that he's going to say, first of, it, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, he's, he's couching this entire thought that he's given us in 1 Timothy 2 in the idea of prayer. So prayer is the dominant theme of 1 Timothy 2. And then he says of all people, that, that people there is actually man. So in the Greek, that's anthropos, man. That's where we get our word anthropology, study of man. So this is the word anthropos. Now, what he's going to do is he's just going to repeat the anthropos theme through here for a purpose because he's trying to say men, 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 men. And then he's going to say the man. And so he's trying to build up to Jesus. But he says, so intercessions will be made for all people. And then he's going to start listing the kinds of people that he talks about, like for kings or in high places that we may leave a peaceful and quiet life, dignified in every way. So he's talking about kings, and as he's talking about kings, thereby he's talking about the people that live there. There's classifications of people that live all over. And then he says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of our Lord and Savior. So we're understanding. He wants us to pray so that kings can rule well, so there's peaceful places, so that when Christians live in these peaceful, peaceful places, then he can say, if there's peace in the land, it's easier for salvation to go forth. And this is good. It's good for there to be peaceful life. And it's, it's pleasing in, our God, in our God, the sight of our God, Savior, who wants peaceful lives for people because he desires or wills all people to be saved and so this all people right there in verse four again is anthropos so he makes intercessions for all men he desires all men so he's he's repeating it there to be saved come to a knowledge of the truth for there's one god and there's one mediator between god and men anthropos again and then right after that is when he goes the anthropos the man like talking about men and talking about men but here's the man jesus and so he's trying to magnify our, our thought and, and worship towards Jesus, really in this verse, that's what it's about. It's not so much about um, an argument for Arminianism as much as he's just trying to magnify Christ there. The man, Jesus Christ, and then he keeps going. Now, what I think the best way to understood verse four, understand verse 4, where he says, who desires all men, all, it's, ours says all people, all men to be saved. Um, 
One of the best ways, I think, to understand this in light of all the other verses of Scripture is this men, when you read it, certainly you can say, well, fine, it's all men. He desires all men. I think, and this is a valid argument, and I might be in the minority here, but I think that what he's saying there is he desires all types of men. We're talking about kings. We're talking about, obviously, if there's kings, there's people that live um, underneath men so that we can live a peaceful and quiet life. We're talking about the people. So he desires all types of men from all these different classifications to be saved. So it's not a blanket statement, all men, because if we're talking about all men and God doesn't do it, then what kind of God are we talking about? A God that can't save? And so here he's saying um, that he desires all types of men from all runs of life, most rich to most poor, he desires all those kinds to be saved. So I think that fits better in with the whole of the scriptures as we look at it. So we'll keep going. I wish I had tons of time to do more for y'all, but that's really all I have. The second main, main, main verse that they use is in Second Peter, and it's in Second Peter 3, 9, and it says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, he on the you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So whoever the you is, he wants all of those you to reach repentance. So the you here is key. And what we're talking about here is that um, God could come and send the second coming of Christ, but he hasn't. Why is he, why is he forbearing? Why is he being patient? Why is he not coming? And it's because of you. So which you is it we're talking about? Well, the whole of Second Peter, obviously we know, is to Christians. He's talking to Christians. This whole letter is to Christians. If you go back to the very beginning, it says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours um, and by the righteousness of God our Savior. So we know that he's writing to Christians in this particular verse and he's telling them that God is not wanting you believers to, uh, so let's look at it this way. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you believers and those that will believers, not wishing that any would perish any of those believers that will be saved, any of those believers that are, in my mind, predestined, as we would see in some other verses, um, not wishing that any of the ones that he's elected would, be, would perish, but once all of those he's elected would repent, and then they would come to Christ, and then the second coming would come. So th- those are the ways I answer the two hardest texts in regard to that. Now let's look at some of the two verses from the other side. Ephesians 1.5. In love, and this when I was in college and I read this, I said, it just can't say that. Like, I've never heard that before. And this is what it says. In love, this is Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has loved us in the beloved. So you can see straightforwardly, he did it in love. He predestined us, us being Christians, for adoption. He he predestined people to be saved. He says it again in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God consults the counsel of his will and he predestines some for salvation. Why does he do it? He does it for the praise of his glorious grace. He does it because he wants to lavish grace onto those whom he's elected and that's why. And well, Anything else? That's it. That's why he did it. Now, there's one other verse we're going to look at, which is in Romans 9. We'll come to that in a little bit. Uh, I'm going to save that for a little bit in just a second. So let's be fair, though. I want to be really fair here, because both sides have tough verses. And in light of that view, I think it's important to admit there's some things that whichever side you fall on, it doesn't change. Number one, just like the Apostle Paul in the beginning of Romans 9, our desire is for people to be saved. For those that are Christians, Paul says in Romans 9, 1 through 3, that he has unceasing anguish for, for his brothers, his fellow kinsmen, to be saved. So wherever you are, we need to be fair. Whichever side you fall on, all of us should still have this unceasing anguish that those who aren't Christians would become Christians because we don't know. We, we have no idea who they are and who they're not. The next one is that we should believe We all hold to this. We need to be fair. It doesn't change this. That our belief, wherever you are, is that Jesus Christ is the only one that that saves. He's the only way to salvation, John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12. We know that that is the key. And so whichever side we fall on, we still are going to say, Jesus is the way for you to be saved. The next one is this, that we need to, uh, we all have an absolute need to be on mission to make disciples. Whichever way we're on, Matthew 28 applies to both of us. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And lastly is this, um, and I think this one's key. 
whichever side we fall on, there's still, there's still an absolute clear command from God to pray for those that need to be saved. Matthew 9, 38. See the harvest? Pray. First thing he says, pray, and then he tells us to go. But he does tell us to go, but he tells us to pray. So we know that there's a clear command for all of us, wherever we are, to pray for the harvest. Now, Wayne Grudem, I want to define election for us, and then we're going to get into some stuff about God's glory and and then look at Romans 9. Wayne Grudem defines election this way. This is how he says it. Um, Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved not on account of any foreseen merit in them. So it's not based on uh, anything they've done beforehand, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So it doesn't mean, and I'll, I'll unpack this in just a second, it doesn't mean that he looked down the corridors of time and he disaw, foresaw those that would choose him first and then he predestined them because that they would choose him first. And this is how I used to think. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it can't be that, because if it is that, then that means they did something first, then God chose them. And if they did something first, there, that's a, there's a work involved. And there's, there's something they did first before God. They worked first, and then God chose them. And we know that salvation is never by works, ever by works. It can only be of grace. If it's by works, then we have room to boast. That's kind of the whole point of Ephesians 2. So, He's defining as as an election as a work of God to choose people before salvation, not on account of any unforeseen merit, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. And we we need to see that there is a pattern throughout the entirety of Scripture that God does things for his own good pleasure. Um, God does things for his own namesake and his own glory over and over and over throughout the Scriptures. Now, I'm going to give you some things. To, to listen to. Don't try to write these down. This is going to be impossible for you to write these down, even if you use both hands. Like, you're not going to get it all down. So just, just listen. Psalm 106, 8. Yet he saved them for his own namesake that he might make known his own power. Psalm 25, 11. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. That's just a reoccurring thing that God does things for his own namesake and for his own glory. Psalm 23, 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Romans 9. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory of his his vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may cut you off. I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. He says it twice there. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. Malachi 2.2. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. John 17. The priestly prayer, the great high priestly prayer of Christ in the garden, 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth, having glorified the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now consider the glory Jesus had before the world existed. And this is after the incarnation, before he goes to the cross. He says, I want to to be glorified in that exact same way. He's acting, the whole point of salvation is for the glory of God. And just as John 12 Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, having glorified it, and I will glorify it again. We've already read Ephesians 1. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Another theme of God's glory being preeminent throughout the scriptures. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So there's a a theme, and I could pull out a hundred more verses that say that everything God does, his chief concern is his own name and his own glory. And so as we hear that God wants to elect some for his own glory, as it says in Ephesians 1, this is not out of the character of God. Not out of the character of God at all, that he would choose to elect some. Just, just do this. Look back with me. Over here is the Old Testament. Look back at the Old Testament and just think about it as a whole for a second. Is it out of the character of God just thinking about the Old Testament. If you grew up in church, you'll be very familiar. If you didn't, just follow along. Um, 
So look in the Old Testament. Is it out of the character of God to say, I want to choose one particular people and bless that one particular people. Elect them out of all people and give them everything. And as a matter of fact, by doing so, I'm not going to help anybody else. I'm actually going to tell them to go over there and kill them and take their stuff and come back. And I'm just going to continually bless this one particular group that I elect and thereby not bless the rest. They may receive some secondary or tertiary blessings that kind of flow out from them from, for life. But the main people I want to bless are the Israelites. Would we think that's out of the, the, the character of God to, to do that in the New Testament when he's already been doing it in the whole Old Testament? So we know that God can do what he wants. It's not out of his character to do that. And all things he does are for his glory. We don't, we don't necessarily fully understand it. We, we can't look on this side in our, in our limited 75, 80, 85 years that we get and say I fully understand it. But we do know that it's not out of the character of God to do that. Um, many, I, I've used this illustration before, but this is how I, I try to help people, um, and even myself, uh, understand this. If I were to take a, uh, a wedding picture from my wedding and just kind of pull it out of the, our, our book, this, we, we didn't have digital photos. You know, back 15 years ago, there was no such thing as this advanced stuff y'all have. So we literally have this big book right there that you have to flip open and you pull it out and you're like, there, hey, there's a picture. Like pictures are these little floppy things. Y'all, y'all might not know that. They're not always on screens. They used to be like little floppy things that you could look at and they eventually fade. Um, but anyway, if I were to pull that out right there and put it in front of you, you could see one little snapshot of my wedding, right? You could see, okay, everybody's still. I don't know what's going on, but I can see what's going on. But if I were to get my wedding video and play it, I could get up to a certain place to that video and pause it, and then on the screen right there and put that picture beside it, it'd be the exact same thing. You'd say, okay, that's what was going on. And I could keep watching the video, and I could understand kind of the context of that picture. That makes sense? That's my illustration to help us understand this, which is all of us only live in the snapshot. We can look at the snapshot. And so as we look at the snapshot, that's our life. And we don't get to have the benefit of the whole wedding video. We just get the snapshot. So when we look at that, that's all we have. So to try to understand the purposes of God in electing some and choosing, we don't know. The only person that gets to see the whole wedding video that understands from beginning to end and how everything is coming together is God. All we have are snapshots. And so we can't just take a snapshot and think that we understand the entire purposes of God in salvation. We, we've got his word, and we've got some things that we can try to put together and understand. But the reason why God does stuff, we don't know. Because we don't get to see the whole video yet. In heaven, maybe, you know, we'll understand all of his purposes and how it works out for salvation. But right now, we live in this world, and we have snapshots, and we try to understand it the best we can. So let's look at Romans chapter 9, and this is the last one. This is uh, four notes on unconditional election I want you to see. So we've talked about election and I, I, would, I would hold to that, that election is unconditional, as, as, as the definition of Grudem said. It's not based on any merit of ours. It's unconditional. It's not conditioned on anything. If you're elected, it's because God decided to do it for his glorious grace. It wasn't based on anything that you did prior to. And we'll see some Bible that will help us understand that. Let's look at, starting in Romans 9, we'll start at verse 6. And uh, we'll take a little piece and talk, take a little piece and talk rather than read the thing all together. Let's start at verse 6. It says, Not as though the word of God had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. For this is what the promise has said about this time next year, and will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had nothing, had done nothing, I'm sorry, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Let's stop here. So Rebekah has two children, Isaac and Esau. Um, and before they were born, before they had done anything, Nothing had happened. They, they weren't even born yet. And so he's, he's equating that Old Testament story to election. And he's looking at it in verse 11. He go, and he says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. They, it's not based on anything they had done. Then he says, and he goes, Paul kind of takes this really high after he's looking at that story. And he says, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So he's saying, in the Old Testament, there's these two children, and God decided to pick one, thereby not picking the other. It wasn't based on anything good or bad they had done. It's just because he decided to do it. And just like God did that in the Old Testament, that's, that's what it's like for salvation. That's what Paul's telling us right here in this particular verse. Though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that the reason why is in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, so it's not based on anything they did, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I think I meant to say J- Jacob and Esau. So you have, you have Jacob and Esau here. Before they had done anything at all, God says, Jacob is the one that I'm going to elect to have the blessing through. Esau, I'm not going to. They haven't done anything yet. So you're like, why? Well, that doesn't seem right. But again, snapshots. We don't know why. We don't have the purpose of the whole video. I don't know why. We don't know why. But what we can see here is this. Um, from that, from verses 6 through 12, and he's, he's equating that to our salvation, our election. Those of you that are in Christ and one day will be in Christ, I, that's the way I look at it because I don't know, um, is this. The first thing that we can look at, the first note on unconditional election is our election Our being saved is not based on anything you or I have done. It is unconditional. It's not based on anything you or I have done. Now, this is really important. It can't be the foreknowledge thing where I said he looks down the corridors of time because if if that's the case, then it means that we've done a work. And if there's one reoccurring theme that's sure, that I think all of us agree with, is that um, salvation cannot be a work. We don't ever believe that salvation is a work. We have to say salvation is what God has done. If there's anything that you or I have done in our salvation, we have room to boast. And if we have room to boast, then God gets 95% of the glory. You pick the percentage, whatever. But we get a percentage of glory because we did a work. We have room to boast. And there's a reoccurring theme over and over and over and over throughout the scriptures that there's no room for us to boast in our salvation. All of our boasting goes to Christ. It, it wasn't that we did something good first and then God chose us or we're smart enough, smarter than the other people. None of that's true. So what's clear from the scriptures, just right here as he's, as he's using the story of Jacob and Esau and equating it to salvation, is that our election is b- not based on anything you or I have done. It's unconditional. Which means the playing field is level when it comes to salvation. Not just the smart people get in. Not just the good pe- looking people get in. That's why I'm in, right? And that's why, well, anyway. Um, but it, the, the field is, is level. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, who your parents are, what country you were born in, what time period you are born in, or anything. It's not based on what you do. It's based on God. So the playing field is completely level when it comes to salvation, humanly speaking, at least. Um, now, the next thing is this. So the first thing that we see is that our, uncon- our, our election is not based on anything we've done. And I'm going to say in a minute that I think that's good news. You're going to think, well, that's not good news. It is good news. Let's talk about it. Let's look at verse 14 through 18. So Paul, continually as he's writing here, sees some of the, the things that people are going to say as they read this. They, I mean, this is a tough, tough subject. No question whatsoever. People read this and they, they have questions, which is normal. And Paul is going to give answers to those questions that he can. And so they say, well, then... As he's written that, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And then he says, what then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Can God just pick somebody and say, I'm going to love you and I'm not going to love you or I'm going to choose you and I'm not going to choose you? Doesn't that seem like that's injustice on God's part? How can he do that? Paul sees that question coming and writes it down so we can say, okay, that was my question. Thank you. And so he says, what then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Now, I know you're thinking, well, Paul's just answering his question. He's, he's free to say by no means, and that's just his opinion. Thanks, Paul. I don't get to see any say so. You just say by no means, so it says so. That's it. Back to the doctrine of the word that Jack wrote, that Jack wrote, that Jack preached. That's still the Bible, right? So if the question's there and there's the answer, that's the Bible telling us as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just Paul's opinion. It's Paul carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the answer. Is God unjust? By no means. That's the answer. So no, he's not unjust. So as much as we want to charge God with injustice, the Bible says he's not unjust by doing this. It's not just Paul saying it. It's the Bible saying it. God's saying that he's not. And so 
there's, I mean, there's a huge reason, huge reason why Jack and I chose the doctrine of the word first as we go through doctrine. You can't do anything when it comes to doctrine without having a firm belief in the inerrancy of scriptures. Or you just take verses out and just throw them. Like that, by no means, doesn't count. Take it out. You didn't answer your question, Paul, and I don't like it. Like, you have to have a firm foundation on the word as you're trying to understand things. So, back to this. Paul says, by no means, God is not unjust. For he says to Moses, this is referring to the, the story of Pharaoh. He looks at Moses, he goes, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have com- compassion on whom I will have compassion. I, if I want to have my, uh, compassion on somebody, I will. If I want to have mercy on somebody, I will. If I don't, I don't, he's not obligated, is what he's saying. He's not obligated. And then he says in 16, one of the most central, crucial texts, I think, um, to understanding what would be, you know, this position on understanding salvation. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It being salvation. It depends not on anything you do. Our salvation solely depends on God who has mercy. He will show mercy to some and show compassion to some and some will not. We'll we'll get down to the why soon because that seems like, why would he do that? We'll get to that. Um, And again, the answer might not be satisfactory to you, but it's God's answer. That's all we can do. So here we see, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. So we know, I think we can all say, Pharaoh, not one of the elect. And so why? Why did he pick somebody to not be elect. I mean, that's, the, that's the struggle we all have, right? We're fine with God electing the people that get to go to heaven. It's really, and understandably, understandably, like this isn't some small thing. What about these people? I live with them. I love them. I want them to be saved and I pray for them and they never get saved. And by the time I die or they die, they don't get saved. I think to myself, God's unjust. I wanted that person, my brother, my uncle, my whatever. So it's a real question. Like we live in this world where we love people and we want them to be saved forever. So it's not, a, it's not a crazy question to say, we didn't know Pharaoh personally, but you know someone that isn't a Christian and you want them to be a Christian. And if they don't become a Christian, I completely understand because I feel the same way. Why can't they be a Christian then, God? So Paul knows this is a real thing. And he says, I raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Don't forget, God's name and God's glory is one of the, his greatest chief things that he's going towards. This is what I said in the very beginning as I laid out all those verses. So why would he raise up Pharaoh? Because that's what's going to demonstrate his glory the most. But I don't understand that, and I don't either. I don't have the benefit of seeing the whole thing unfold. I, w- I wish I did. And then he says, So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. So it's a little bit different than 15. 15 says... He has compassion on whomever he wills, and he has mercy on whomever he wills. But in this one, he says he has mercy on whomever he wills. But then he says, and he hardens whomever he wills, like Pharaoh. Some he chooses, some he doesn't. So here's the second thing I want you to see. And I, I talked about it right here. Unconditional election magnifies God's righteousness. That's what's key in there. What we know is, whomever he chooses, he does it for his glory, and it's supposed to magnify. I raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose, that I might show you my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So one of the purposes of this, of raising up people, either hardening or for, for mercy, either way, is that God's glory is going to be more displayed in that act than not. Why, I don't know. In what way, we can't say for sure. But we know for sure that he is going to magnify his righteousness or his glory or his power is going to be made known through it. All right, so some might say, how does this magnify God's righteousness if people are hardened? Well, that's a good question, but let's, let's just look at it from a slightly different standpoint. I think there's three beautiful pieces of the gospel inside this right here. Let me show you what I, look at, what I see. Three beautiful pieces of the gospel and unconditional election. Th- this will not be on the screen. This is just still under the banner of number two. Um, What's clear from this is there is no sinner that's too bad to be saved. There's no sinner that's too bad to be saved. He hardens whomever he wills. 
He chooses whomever he wills. Doesn't matter who they are. David, man after God's own heart. An adulterer and a killer. Paul clearly was part of killing Christians. Decided to choose him on the road to Damascus. There's not a sinner out of the realm of God's choosing. So I think that's a beautiful piece of the gospel that's being portrayed here is that anyone, any sinner can be elected by God, no matter how bad you are. That's really good news. That's gospel. That's good news. Another thing that's shown here is this, is that those who are elected are elected to proclaim God's name in all the earth. That's part of the gospel. We want to display God's name as his trophies of grace in this world. Another thing that I think is shown here is that those who are elected have tremendous assurance of their salvation. I mean, to think about here. God chooses whomever he wills, and it's God. And it depends nothing on what you've done, but on God who has mercy. So if God has therefore chosen someone to be saved, God chose them, not, you know, you didn't get picked for football at recess. God chose you for salvation. There's no ending. Like, you can't shut that down. You can't say, I'm not part of that anymore. God has done it. I think that gives us a tremendous assurance of salvation to know that, well, if it's not based on anything I do, I can't lose it. It's not just based on anything I've done to get it. I can't even lose it. There's nothing that's going to separate me from this great salvation I have in God. So there's some beautiful pieces of this unconditional election from this verses. Now on to verse three. Um, This is kind of a contrast to number one. If number one says our election is not based on anything we've done, verse 16 shows us that our... Our election is based all on God's mercy, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's all based on God's mercy, his compassion, his grace, however you want to say it. Election is based on God's mercy. Um, he's free to choose whom he wills for salvation. Now, we're going to get to, I think, what are the toughest, maybe some of the toughest verses in the Bible. Um, John Piper looking at these particular verses, he says, I think this is the deepest argument in all the Bible for why God is right to unconditionally choose whom to love and whom to hate, whom to show mercy and whom to harden, whom to make a vessel for honor and whom to make a vessel for dishonor. The deepest reason this is right, Paul says, is that it displays most fully the glory of God, including displaying the glory of God and his wrath against sin and his power in judgment so that the vessels of mercy can know him most completely and worship him with the greatest intensity for all time. So the best argument, the best explanation, if you will, of why God does this is in these verses. And some of us will find it satisfactory and some of us will find it lacking. And in the end, that's okay. In the end, that's okay. Again, this is a journey for most of us theologically. Wherever you end, I'm okay with. And that's my application. But let's be fair and let people take the journey. So here's how Paul, by the power of the Spirit, really helps us understand this. Um, So let's, let's put point four up there first. Unconditional election is completely God's sovereign right to do and is meant to cause worship. It's meant to cause worship. Let's, let's look at it in detail. And this is, this is very tough, right? This is very tough. Because the answer is, okay, if, is this all who you want? How can you find fault in me then? If I had no shot, if I'm one of the ones that doesn't get elected, if I had no shot from eternity past, well then how can you find me at fault? That's the question Paul knows that's coming and he, erase, he raises it right here. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But, I mean, this, if you love the sovereignty of God and you love the goodness of God, verse 20 won't land on you too harsh. If it's difficult for you, let me say this, pastorally, I want you to listen to me. If verse 20 makes you angry, that's okay. I would love to have a conversation with you about it. I I know that. It made me, it was very difficult for me to get through 20. But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? I can't ask questions, God? That's how it is? So I know if, that's, if it's troubling for you, pastorally, listen, Jack and I love you, 
and we're not trying to convert you to our belief system, and we certainly don't want you to be mad at God because of a sermon. So let us pastorally walk you through the goodness of God and the love of God if you need to hear that. So don't get mad at verse 20, all right? We, we, we love you. So here's, here's Paul's answer. And he's not trying to inflame anger in any of us. Verse 20. You'll say to me, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Um, there's, a, there's an example in Grudem's Systematic, which is like this. Basically, it's this, the equivalent of, like somebody writes a book, you know, I am J.K. Rowling, and I'm writing the book, Harry Potter. We probably should use something different, but this first thing came to my mind. All right, it would, it would seem crazy for us, because we know Harry Potter, like, can't look at J.K. Rowling and say, hey, how come you had to do this? I didn't want to go over there. I didn't want to have to fight Voldemort. I want the lightning on my head. I didn't want to have to, what, like, we would never ever say that Harry Potter has the right to look at J.K. Rowling and say, why'd you write the book this way? Right? Like, that's kind of the example Grudem uses as we're looking at this. And it's the same kind of idea. Um, God is the one who molds and shapes things. And he picks it. And who are we, if we're in the story of God, that's what history is, his story, who are we to look back at God, the author, and say, hey, uh, why'd you do it this way? That doesn't make sense to me, God. That's kind of what Paul's saying. Now, I know that that's not necessarily for all of us the best answer. That's not the most satisfying explanation. And pastorally, listen, I, Jack and I are here for you. We want to talk to you about this. So please come talk to us. But this is through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he says, um, as Piper says, the deepest argument of why the Bible explains. Has the potter, verse 21, no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? So he grabs all of them. All those who might be elected or not, that's the same lump. There's nothing good, there's nothing bad, everybody's there. And then he starts forming them, some for what he calls vessels of, um, how does he call it? I want to make sure I say it. Uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the vessels of uh, mercy. So he's got these two categories. He's, Here's my vessel of mercy. I'm going to take from the same lump. They're all the exact same and form a vessel of mercy. I'm going to take another one, form. They are a vessel of wrath. Now, that sounds just like this robotic, like God creating things. But again, that's not the way the world is portrayed to us through the scriptures. We know that we live in a real world. And how all that works out, I'm just going to say, all that works out as a mystery. God has the ability to create, as in, um, we know that that book with, Rowling and Harry Potter is not real because it's a book, it's a fairy tale. But we're talking about God. So God has the ability to make a story so that it is real life because he's God. So the story that he's created where we can't talk back to the author isn't a fake story. It's a real story. And he has the ability to put it all together and us not be able to fully understand it. So here he is. And he's saying, what if I want to endure, make those that would be endured for great patience and those that are mercy and those who would be enduring for wrath. And he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory, the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Doesn't God have the right to do this? So there's things that we need to see. Um, I'll do these decently fast for you. Um, if you, for those that are in the church that are saved, you are what would be a vessel of mercy. You would not understand the greatness of being a vessel of mercy if there was no contrast. If everybody was saved, if everybody gets an A, if everybody's perfect, if everything's always awesome and there's never anything bad, then we don't understand how great it is to be a vessel of mercy. If everybody's beautiful and nobody's ugly, we don't understand beautiful because everybody's beautiful. I'm trying to use as many illustrations as I can. So the way that we know it's unbelievable to be an object of mercy is because there is a contrast. And so when we look at that, we say, that compared to this is unbelievable that I'm this. Now, this is the deepest argument that Paul arrives at trying to explain to us. Why does he do this? Because he wants all of us to understand just how amazingly glorious it is to be saved by God. And if there was no contrast, we wouldn't understand how amazing it is. You'd never understand it. 
to the deepest, to the fullest that you can. Why would he do that? I don't know. But this is the argument he's trying to say. He does it primarily for his glory. But why he chose to make it happen this particular way, we can't give an explanation of that. Paul doesn't do that. He just says, what if God choosing to show his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Those that are vessels of mercy receive riches and glory. And we need to best understand that by being able to see the contrast. So there's three deep purposes there. One, we see God's wrath towards sin, which is good. We also see God's power and judgment, which is good. But we also see him making known the riches of his glory to those that are in his church. Huge. So let's, let's look at these conclusions and then we're going we're gonna to go into a time of response. And the response might be different for you. So there's some things I think are important as we look at this. Number one is that love and unity must be primary in the church. These aren't in the text. These are just some things I think are important for you. Love and unity must be primary in the church. The gospel is the most primary thought. The gospel is the most primary teaching. Teachings like this are secondary issues, and so we have to have love and unity ahead of all this. I'm guilty um, of this for sure. Um, I drastically need to improve in how to apply love in all circumstances. Um, But what's key is that God wants us to have love and unity. Jonathan Edwards, a famous Reformed uh, theologian, said that we don't know whom will be saved. We don't know whom God has elected. Therefore, we should tell everyone about Jesus Christ. So if you are a Christian um, and you have been eternally loved by God from eternity past, therefore, you should tell everybody you know about Jesus and just assume God's elected them. So I'm going to go tell them. One thing's for sure, J.D. Greer says this, the more I tell people, it sure does seem that God starts electing them. Right? The more people you tell the gospel, it's a funny thing. God starts electing them for some reason. And I'm using a play on words, starts electing them. Obviously, that's not necessarily the most theological. But what's for sure is that we need to have unity. And as Edwards shows us, we need to tell people about Christ. Which leads me into my second one, obviously, is you evangelize. So the next application is you must evangelize. We need to be like Paul. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. Therefore, I endure everything. I endure everything. Everything. You can go read his, his little list of stuff that he kind of endured in 2 Corinthians 11. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they might also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's what he says in 2 Timothy 2.10. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And I just think, I don't know who they are, so I'll endure everything for everybody I meet so I can preach the gospel to them. Because I want them to obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus that awaits for them in eternal glory. So the second thing is, we have to have, first is we have to have love and unity. The second thing is that we have to evangelize. The third, which I touched on in the very beginning, we have to pray for the gospel to go forward. We have to pray, pray, God, please save people. It doesn't matter whether you're you know, Arminian or Calvinist. If you want somebody to be saved, what do you do? You tell them and you pray for them. Like we're no different in that regard. We, we can argue about how it works, but in the end, like, there's person A, not a believer. Let's go tell them and pray for them. Like, that, the application's still the exact same, whichever way you fall. We want them to be saved. We're going to tell them how to be saved. We're going to tell them Jesus is the only way. And we're going to pray, God, save them. Break down the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Like, we all pray the same. And lastly is this. And this is, I think, probably the last application might fall into those that would hold to my position. But I think it's huge. Um, the last application is worship. I mean, consider. There's nothing good in you, and he chose you anyway. Grudem says it this way, God decides to love me, not because of anything good in me, but simply because he decides to love me. There is no more ultimate reason than that. It humbles us before God to think in this way. It makes us realize that we have no claim on God's grace whatsoever. Our salvation is totally due to grace alone. Our only appropriate response is to give God eternal praise. So I think that's a perfect application for us right now. Now, if you're not in that camp, if you will, it by no means means that you shouldn't worship now. 
Um, you've received salvation and forgiveness of your sin. So there's still plenty of reason for you to worship. So as we go into our time of response here, however God's wired you, um, I would just say, think on, reflect on the beauty that though we had done nothing, God chose to elect us anyway. God chose to save us anyway. And then stand and give him the worship for it. If that's not kind of your theological bend, it's okay. Then still reflect on, if you're in Christ, that God forgave every one of your sins. Knew them anyway and forgave them all. He loves you more than you could ever conceive and give him the glory for that. If you don't know Christ, the question isn't, am I elect, am I not? That's, that's the wrong question, right? The question is, will you trust Christ today? Will you receive forgiveness of your sins today? Because the offer is clearly out there in front of you right now. So take hold it and be forgiven of your sin. You can come talk to me if you want. You can talk to um, Jack afterwards. We'd love to be able to have a conversation with you. Let me pray and we'll respond. God, we thank you for today. We pray that you would be with us now as we worship and as we respond. We'll give you the glory and the honor. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.